Part Two, Chapter Six of True Stories from History and Biography by Nathaniel Hawthorne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A few evenings afterwards, Cousin Clara happened to inquire of Grandfather whether the old chair had never been present at a ball. At the same time, little Alice brought forward a doll with whom she had been holding a long conversation. See, Grandfather, cried she, did such a pretty lady as this ever sit in your great chair? These questions led Grandfather to talk about the fashions and manners which now began to be introduced from England into the provinces. The simplicity of the good old Puritan times was fast disappearing. This was partly owing to the increasing number and wealth of the inhabitants and to the additions which they continually received by the arrival and settlement of people from beyond the sea. Another cause of a pompous and artificial mode of life among those who could afford it was that the example was set by the royal governors. Under the old charter, the governors were the representatives of the people and therefore their way of living had probably been marked by a popular simplicity. But now, as they represented the person of the king, they thought it necessary to preserve the dignity of their station by the practice of high and gorgeous ceremonials. And besides, the profitable offices under the government were filled by men who had lived in London and had there contracted fashionable and luxurious habits of living which they would not now lay aside. The wealthy people of the province imitated them and thus began a general change in social life. So, my dear Clara, said Grandfather, after our chair had entered the province house, it must often have been present at balls and festivals, though I cannot give you a description of any particular one, but I doubt not that they were very magnificent, and slaves in gorgeous liveries waited on the guests and offered them wine in goblets of massive silver were there slaves in those days exclaimed clara yes black slaves and white replied grandfather our ancestors not only bought negroes from africa but indians from south america and white people from ireland these last were sold not for life but for a certain number of years in order to pay the expenses of their voyage across the Atlantic. Nothing was more common than to see a lot of likely Irish girls advertised for sale in the newspapers. 
as for the little negro babies they were offered to be given away like young kittens perhaps alice would have liked one to play with instead of her doll said charlie laughing but little alice clasped the waxen doll closer to her bosom now as for this pretty doll my little alice said grandfather i wish you could have seen what splendid dresses the ladies wore in those times they had silks and satins and damasks and brocades and high head dresses and all sorts of fine things and they used to wear hooped petticoats of such enormous size that it was quite a journey to walk round them and how did the gentlemen dress asked charlie with full as much magnificence as the ladies answered grandfather for their holiday suits they had coats of figured velvet crimson green blue and all other gay colors embroidered with gold or silver lace their waistcoats which were five times as large as modern ones were very splendid sometimes the whole waistcoat which came down almost to the knees was made of gold brocade why the wearer must have shone like a golden image said clara and then continued grandfather they wore various sorts of periwigs such as the tie the spencer the brigadier the major the albemarle the ramillies the feather top and the full bottom their three-cornered hats were laced with gold or silver they had shining buckles at the knees of their small clothes and buckles likewise in their shoes they wore swords with beautiful hilts either of silver or sometimes of polished steel inlaid with gold oh i should like to wear a sword cried charlie and an embroidered crimson velvet coat said clara laughing and a gold brocade waistcoat down to your knees and knee buckles and shoe buckles said lawrence laughing also and a periwig added little alice soberly not knowing what was the article of dress which she recommended to our friend charlie grandfather smiled at the idea of charlie's sturdy little figure in such a grotesque caparison he then went on with the history of the chair and told the children that in seventeen thirty king george the second appointed jonathan belcher to be governor of massachusetts in place of the deceased governor burnett mr belcher was a native of the province but had spent much of his life in europe the new governor found grandfather's chair in the province house he was struck with its noble and stately aspect but was of opinion that age and hard services had made it scarcely so fit for courtly company as when it stood in the earl of lincoln's hall wherefore as governor belcher was fond of splendor he employed a skilful artist to beautify the chair 
This was done by polishing and varnishing it, and by gilding the carved work of the elbows, and likewise the oaken flowers of the back. The lion's head now shone like a veritable lump of gold. Finally, Governor Belcher gave the chair a cushion of blue damask with a rich golden fringe. Our good old chair being thus glorified, proceeded Grandfather, it glittered with a great deal more splendor than it had exhibited just a century before when the Lady Arbella brought it over from England. Most people mistook it for a chair of the latest London fashion, and this may serve for an example that there is almost always an old, time-worn substance under all the glittering show of new invention. Grandfather, I cannot see any of the gilding, remarked Charlie who had been examining the chair very minutely. "'You will not wonder that it has been rubbed off,' replied Grandfather, "'when you hear all the adventures that have since befallen the chair. "'Gilded it was, and the handsomest room in the province house was adorned by it.' "'There was not much to interest the children in what happened "'during the years that Governor Belcher remained in the chair.' At first, like Colonel Shute and Governor Burnett, he was engaged in disputing with the legislature about his salary. But as he found it impossible to get a fixed sum, he finally obtained the king's leave to accept whatever the legislature chose to give him. And thus the people triumphed. After this long contest for the privilege of expending their own money as they saw fit, the remainder of Governor Belcher's term of office was principally taken up in endeavoring to settle the currency. Honest John Hull's pine-tree shillings had long ago been worn out or lost or melted down again, and their place was supplied by bills of paper or parchment, which were nominally valued at three pence and upwards. The value of these bills kept continually sinking because the real hard money could not be obtained for them. They were a great deal worse than the old Indian currency of clamshells. These disorders of the circulating medium were a source of endless plague and perplexity to the rulers and legislators, not only in Governor Belcher's day, but for many years before and afterwards. Finally, the people suspected that Governor Belcher was secretly endeavoring to establish the Episcopal mode of worship in the provinces. There was enough of the old Puritan spirit remaining to cause most of the true sons of New England to look with horror upon such an attempt. Great exertions were made to induce the king to remove the governor. Accordingly, in 1740, he was compelled to resign his office and grandfather's chair into the bargain to Mr. Shirley. End of Part 2, Chapter 6